do you fix a road properly a little at a time over 10 years? Or do you try to say you're doing something quickly and your government is efficient, so you do it in a year? It is not sexy to come up with something that you'd have to plan over 40 years when you're trying to win office for the next three years. Hello, podcast listeners. It's another week, another Thursday, and with that comes another episode of Grassroots Radio. Thank you for joining us. I am Yannick Bird, your host, and my guest today is Colin Jenkins, who is an architect, project manager, and sustainable development consultant, which is perfect because this is part two of our series on sustainable development. Colin is also someone who devotes considerable time engaging in social projects and men's empowerment activism. He's also been involved in some very interesting research, which we talk about later on in this interview. If you're someone who is interested in fascinating local research, the New Grassroots is currently conducting a national youth survey. Yes, there is still time to participate. If you're interested as a young person, please go to thenewgrassroots.com and right on the front page, you will find a link to fill out the survey and we would be so appreciative of your participation. Following this interview, we have one more part of our sustainable development mini-series where we will be speaking with Rulio Camacho, who is a marine biologist right here in Antigua and Barbuda. So stay tuned for that next week. And now here is Mr. Colin J. Jenkins to tell you who he is. Hi, good day. Um, My name is Colin John Jenkins. I'm 39 years old and I am what you call a sustainable development consultant. Um, What that means is someone who has experience in design, management, and special accreditation in green rating systems or the like. And can you tell me how you first got started in this field or what inspired you to do this kind of work? I'm curious about how spaces are put together, but not just how spaces are put together, Uh, more so how they should function. We go into a place, you feel great about it. When you look at a place, it looks wonderful. It looks well put together. You may not know all of the reasons why you feel this way, Mm -hmm. but it seems very structured, very symmetrical. It reads right, feels right, functions right. And so I was always curious about that aspect of development. Then when I went to Cuba, to study architecture for six years while I was there, um, I got even more curious about how buildings should function. And so there is um, a, a, a special place in my heart in terms of looking at doing things that people would enjoy in terms of putting spaces together. And so it was not necessarily that I wanted to just become an architect from since I was younger. I Mm -hmm. I figured spaces that read well, that were put together well, was something I wanted to introduce. It was a problem I wanted to solve because where I'm from, we don't have a lot of great spaces. Um, So from there, I um, got curious to the end of my career in architecture. And um, when I went on to look at project management, I specialized in um, sustainable development 
and um, stumbled on something called green rating systems, which are from the States. It's called green rating systems because uh, it's founded on the whole principles of sustainable development, the three pillars of sustainable development, the economy, the ecology, and the society. And they came up with a system, a scientific approach to look at spaces, buildings, development, and relate how well they have um, adhered to the paradigm of sustainable development. So I found that what existed and I got involved with it. I went to the United States several times, got accreditation, it's done, and uh, here I am. So it sounds all very interesting. I'm wondering if there were any spaces in particular that you had the opportunity to experience that really fed into the inspiration to go in there. Are there any particular buildings or anything like that that made you really go, wow, I want to make this kind of thing? There's a designer in Antigua Barbuda by the name of Malcolm Payne. Uh, he did the ACB Financial Center on High Street. Mm-hmm. He also did the Medical Benefits Pharmacy state insurance building along with another colleague he worked on that and there's several residences that he's done one particularly that stands out um the it's to the north of the the fidges creek church Mm. and so i his his type of architecture and style stands out in antigua and barbuda Mm -hmm. and and so i got i got attracted to wanting to have a conversation with him and um, we have in professional conversations about his approach to designing and so on and i found i found the way that he approached it was something that i i I was taught in school like um he's talented but beyond that there was order and rational and method in the way he approached design and so in terms of a local context, that's one of the inspirations that I look towards. Andrew Goodenough is another. He's an English architect who resides here. His style is a little bit more on the contemporary traditional side, while Malcolm is more modernist. Um, but I combine those along with my appreciation for design overseas. And so you'd have people like Richard Mayer and um, um, other persons such as Ito from Japan. And in other words, any any structures that I see that person spend time in developing that made sense that um, that you can 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 relate to. Uh, and so beyond that, I wanted to add something else to it, which is that these spaces and buildings are sustainable. Uh, and and now you find a lot of conversation taking place. Um, with the whole health and wellness aspect. And um, that is something as well that I, I went and delved into and, and became accredited in to add to the portfolio that I have. So it's no longer that the spaces and development are just green, mm-hmm. but in terms of internally, are they well? And well within itself has seven dimensions. So you can imagine how this becomes very, very detailed and technical. Right. Mm-hmm. Without getting super detailed or technical, <laughs> can you can you say a bit more about the, the wellness aspect and how that kind of factors into design of buildings in particular? What, like what, what kind I'm of gonna, considerations? Yeah, um, well is interesting. Let me explain why. 
Do you know, on average, you spend about 90% of your time indoors as human beings? Well, I live in Canada, so probably even higher than that. <laughs> All right. So here you have a situation where you have the paradigm of being sustainable and green coming out. And they deal with metrics such as sites, energy efficiency, water efficiency, material and resources, indoor air quality, regional priority, and so on. Well, on the other hand, they look at, look, that's the building, but what about the people? Mm -hmm. And so they said, okay, um, let's do some research based on the lead rating system um, and come up with one that deals with health and wellness. So they looked at seven dimensions of well, which um, basically comes from the, the, physiologic, the physiological aspects of human beings, meaning your secretion, your circulation system, your lymphatic system. So, so they took a medical approach to it and they'd synthesize it into things that can be integrated in design. And so they looked on lighting, they looked on air quality, they looked at nutrition, fitness, comfort, mind, and what. And for each of these metrics, they came up with a series of things that the building would have to adhere to on the minimum standard to be considered a well space. I'll give an illustration. Lighting level should be a particular, um, uh, a particular metric standard to ensure that you don't have glare or you're using appropriate lighting levels so it doesn't affect your eyes in the long run. They talk about, um, for example, with fitness, um, using the stairs instead of the elevator and the designing the spaces so that it encourages that. Mm -hmm. For instance, um, nutrition, they, they look at if you have spaces within the workspace that deals with um, food distribution, that there is proper labeling for the what you're consuming, um, the serving sizes for their meals is a particular dimension, the diameter, so it doesn't encourage overconsumption at any given time. It talks about work um, privileges in terms of if you travel for a certain amount of time, um, you're given a certain amount of time off to recover. It talks about things as much as paternity leave and so on, and where it should be. Uh, when you're talking about um, water, the level and the, the, the portability of the water that you have in the spaces, that the water is tested for coliforms and um, turbidity, it goes to that level. So there's there's 102 different metrics that you measure based on the building to see where you are. Because the occupants of the building and their health and wellness is paramount. Because if 90% of your time is spent indoors, and then on the flip side, if you're the majority of the income that a company expends is in paying salaries, you want to maximize on your human resource capital as much as possible. So health and wellness added to lead gives you a holistic picture where you not only focus on the building themselves, but the persons who occupy the space. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier that in Antigua in particular, you don't see a lot of this kind of design really... No. No, yeah. If you if you follow the the media reports in Antigua, just today, just today, they were protesting about condition work conditions. Right, in the Ministry of Agriculture. 
You said it, I didn't. <laughs> well, it was in the news. Yeah, so there, there are a lot of issues like that with various buildings in Antigua where workers are getting sick just by going to work and occupying those spaces. Mm-hmm. What do you think is sort of at the root of those problems persisting the way that they do in our society? If I was to say lack of design, I would be only addressing half of the problem. And the reason why I said so, I'm a designer myself. Mm-hmm. So I can appreciate sometimes... As designers, you may want to have a particular outcome and clients dictate what happens. And so let's say you may say, look, you know, we need to reserve a space for workers for their meal. And I'm giving you a personal example of this. Okay. And the client may say, the workers don't need that. They can eat at their desk. Hmm. So here you are supposed to be designing a space that provides an environment for them to be comfortable, sanitary, Um, So you can control the activity and they come back and say, look, we don't have money for all of this fanfare. They can eat at their desk. So in the end, when the the development is done, persons may say the designer did not put in, Mm -hmm. not having the benefit of understanding that it was a client-driven decision. Right. So it's twofold. Right. So in that... In that scenario, the client would be concerned about cost, but in the long run, it could potentially end up costing more if not having those facilities leads to workers getting sick, which means that they're spending less time at work or you have Egg, to pay out. Exactly. Health. So it's exactly. kind of a long-term versus short-term. Yeah, yeah because you, you see, right, uh, I want to push in, in LEAD, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Designing. Um, it's based on on other programs such as BRIAM, that's in the UK, in other the major countries that have their own rating systems, they, they are big on something called life cycle assessments. So the decisions you make now should impact the lifetime assessment of what it is that you're doing. You can't make decisions for immediate gains thinking that you've done the right thing when you would have shortchanged yourself for the long term. So you may think, for instance, you're saving yourself a couple of thousands of dollars because you didn't hire a high-end consultant to to look at the development. When if you had paid the few thousand dollars more at the front end, they would have probably saved you several several hundred thousands on the back end. And that is why even in project management, um, which I lecture from time to time, the big thing with project management, especially integrative management, is to get all the players at the beginning to have a discussion or a charrette meeting so you can trash out what you need to then and, and avoid as many risk and pitfalls, negative risks and pitfalls going forward. That's what you want. But of course, that doesn't always happen. Most of the time, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so what you find happening a lot of the times, you have projects that have run into trouble over budgets, over time schedules, and and issues thereafter. Not just residential, but even commercial projects, governmental projects as well. In Antigua and Barbuda, there is a physical planning act that I'm sure that this is something that you would have to be very familiar with in your line of work, is that correct? Yeah, that comes from the DC. Right. So do you feel like that particular policy is adequate for the, you know, the type of development that we have going on in Antigua? Or do you feel like there should be 
I don't know, additions or subtractions to make it more... It has to be updated. Yeah. How I old know, is it actually? I'm not quite sure. I know for sure that they were looking at legislations to update it. You see the things like codes, mm-hmm. like even our OECS building code, they had they updated it recently. Um, codes and laws, in my mind, my personal professional view, are living documents. They should be updated as, as time and circumstances change. And we have laws and codes that are very old. Um, I know I was part of a group that was commissioned by the OECS to add as a supplementary document to the OECS building code, a manual that specifically deals with structures that are used as hurricane shelters. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they were looking at schools. Right. So they asked us as experts to come in and provide or design this manual that can complement the code because the code did not cover it. So we went in and we looked at flooding, um, hazardous areas such as zoning for volcanoes, um, value engineering, hydraulic, um, hydrology, excuse me, um, sustainable design and planning, security, maintenance and operation. And we put a manual together, which they accepted when we presented it to the um, heads of ministers of government of the OECS in Antigua. They accepted it one time mm-hmm. because they realized it was needed, and especially after the passage of Hurricane Irma and Maria. Right. So these things are, have to be updated with the change in time and with climate change. It brings another dimension to the discussion. For example, let me give you some cases, even hotels, certain hotels now, in tourism itself, there are a huge group of persons of the various demographics that travel to places that support health and wellness and sustainable principles. They patronize these places. So if they know that there's a hotel that's, let's say, a Green Globe or a lead-weighted or a wellness internationally recognized area, they go to these places Mm -hmm. as support. Mm -hmm. Not just them, but huge um, A-level celebrity stars and so on. They want to be seen doing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there is an impetus even from a development standpoint to change your brand. Right. And like this um, ecotourism and green tourism is something that I've heard spoken a lot about in the last few years. But then to take a very controversial example, we still have developments like the Yida project being pushed through, which would seem to be like the exact anti-sustainable kind of project. Do you have any opinions to share about that particular development? Well, I know for sure most of the, 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 the environmentalists in Antigua are not for it. They're not for the way that it's done, okay? If you want to prove that you are doing something that is sustainable or eco-friendly, one would assume that you'd want to have it internationally graded or rated by one of these green rating systems. So if you said, look, we have a lead accredited, sorry, a lead certified project in design phase, it stops all of them in their tracks. Mm -hmm. Because what happens, you have to submit the designs that fit the criteria to the United States and they will grade you. 
And once the ingredient says you've met the criteria, you can say that you have a green project. To say it and have nothing to prove is a different discussion. Have they said that it's sustainable or green? No, they have not. No, no. I think there was talk one time where there's an aspect of it that one of the overseas architects said that they were going to go for that in part of the development. But to date, they have not come out and said that it has been certified in design phase by the United States Green Building Council. I have personally worked in a building in Antigua that has gone through that. So I can tell you with authority, things such as sustainable site management and how you deal with the ratio of building area to green spaces is something that they they look at. How you deal with construction waste and how you manage soil runoff and soil erosion is something that you have to come up with as a master plan and a narrative to give them for them to approve. It is very detailed. Right, and that's something that would take quite a while to actually design, I guess, not send ne- off, not, no? not necessarily. It mm-hmm. is tedious, but you need a team to work on it. It is tedious, but you need a team with people who know what they're doing to work on it and provide it. But there is this idea or criticism that sometimes gets leveled against people who are sustainably minded or who are environmentalists that they're simply anti-development like they don't want to see things change they don't you know they're concerned about two mangrove leaf or whatever and they don't want to see things develop in a way that's going to provide opportunities for the population at large what kind of response would you give to someone who has that kind of attitude towards greener buildings or more sustainable development or even this LEED certification, which some people might see as unnecessary? Well, I'll say two things, right? For one, just putting up some data here for you. More than 58,000 commercial and institutional projects are currently participating in LEED, comprising of 10.7 billion square feet of construction space in more than 140 countries and territories. In addition, more than 50,000 residential units have been certified on the lead for home rating systems. I'll start there. That's one. What this tells you is that the world over has picked up and realized this is something that needs to happen. The second thing is, I'm an architect by first profession. Why would I go and certify myself in lead and well to certify myself out of business. That's a good point. Okay then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you're also involved, I think you're a co-founder of the Antiguan Barbuda Council on Sustainable Development, is that correct? Yes, that's a think tank that we formed or came up with after the 2014 elections. What exactly was the the impetus or the genesis of that group? And can you tell me kind of what kind of activities you guys are involved in currently? We, there was a group of like-minded persons at that time that felt that a lot of the rhetoric we heard, political, and I understand that's the nature of the game and the industry, but we, we wanted more of the policies to be grounded in data Mm -hmm. and research. 
So, for example, this is something which I thought was a great initiative when the prime minister mentioned 500 homes in 500 days. Yes. A lot of people had huge debates going on on social media about it. But I said, look, in terms of a tagline, it, it's catchy. Mm -hmm. In terms of a vision, it's, it's ambitious. In terms of filling a gap that's there, it's, it's applicable. Mm -hmm. Now, the actual conceptualization, design, implementation, and maintenance of it, that is where a lot of the skepticism came up. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, just like that, it's to say, okay, how can we merge science and politics together in true political science form <laughs> so, that, so that we felt more comfortable with some of the propositions we made and it was just not a knee-jerk reaction to say something to get people going. So we had a few meetings, we came up with the name, but it was a bit of a different type of think tank. Um, what will happen if there are persons who strongly feel that something needs to be researched, persons who have the time and interest in that topic will get together and we will do the nine month research program and then release an academic paper. Okay. We did this twice over the space of the years to see or to demonstrate to the public that it can be done without any funding. Since then, we've kind of relaxed because I guess working lives, and of course, this wasn't a paid job. Right. If persons in the business sector, the private sector, even the government sector, wanted this particular type of research to be done by locals, we could have got to get into it. The first research paper that we did had to do with career selections in school. Oh, so, interesting. Yes, we, we went to all of the secondary schools in Antigua and Barbuda, all. And um, we surveyed the fifth farmers at that time. And we asked several questions. For instance, what subjects are you doing for CSEC? Mm -hmm. What is your career choice from these options that are given? The main influence in you choosing that career choice, does your school have career day? Um, and so forth. And of course, we, we, we approached the research as if we were doing a thesis. Mm -hmm. So we did our literature review, we had our methodology, we went and we did our research, we looked at the data and then we came up with our conclusions. Some very interesting came, things came up from that paper. For instance, the first top three careers of choice for the, 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 the persons that did the questionnaire. Guess what they were? Doctor, lawyer, what would be the third one? I'll save you the time. Uh, doctor, lawyer, accountant. Accountant. Accountant was first. What we did then is looked at the subjects being chosen for CSEC. Accounting was not up there. That's interesting. Yeah. We asked, we, so we double-checked the subjects chosen versus the, the popularity of the careers chosen and the correlation was not strong. So hmm. what it meant is Students were choosing subjects to get to A-levels, but they weren't necessarily choosing subjects to be serious-based behind the careers they were choosing. Mm -hmm. We asked, what influenced your career choice? Um, whether it was television, career day, internet, 
um, parents and, and friends and so on. Parents was the number one choice. Right. So yeah, the parents now influencing what career choice the, the students would get themselves into. Mm-hmm. Then we compare the data of the careers, the, the first top 10 careers chosen versus what was offered for scholarships at Board of Education, what was the, the 10 top trend, trending careers in the UK, in the United States. Again, there was not a strong correlation. So you didn't have a scholarship for accounting at the Board of Education, mm-hmm. but you had over 400 students at the fifth form level say they wanted to be accountants. Um, at that time, we had about 12 persons out of the, about 980 students who did the questionnaire. 12 out of 980 that said they were thinking about becoming dentists. Oh, wow. And the less were pharmacists. Around the time when we did the research, there was such a shortage in pharmacy that the government had to go overseas for persons. So what it means is the careers that, the whole relationship of how careers are developed and exposed versus the long-term goal of the country, there's a disconnect. And that's what we try to highlight with the research, that the, the 10, 20, 30, 40-year plan has to be done in such a way like a Singapore approach. This is where we want to be as an economic powerhouse. This is a vision we want for ourselves. These are the scholarships and the areas that we need to now focus on so persons come down that channel. There's a gap in some kind of careers in Antigua that they have to go overseas to get people here for. Mechanical, mm-hmm. electrical, and plumbing engineers, they call it MEP. We don't have these kind of specialists in Antigua, just like that. Quanti surveying is a seriously short supply. The three quanti surveyors I know are elderly people. One is someone who lives here who originated from the UK, but he's looking to retire. The second one is from Nevis, but I haven't seen him in years. The third, which is not as qualified, moved away to the States. I remember one time D. Gisela Isaac at that time had said when she was back Board of Education that if anybody came in for a scholarship for quantity surveying, they would have gotten it immediately. Mm-hmm. But again, at the top, you have doctor, lawyer, accountant. accountant. That's a fascinating piece of research. And the quantity surveying thing is an example I've heard before because my dad is a surveyor and he is constantly saying there are no quantity surveyors in Antigua. There are no yeah. quantity surveyors in Antigua. Yeah. But yeah. when my brother and I were in school, he was encouraging us to be doctors. When we got into our 20s and we already had career fields picked out, then he was like, oh, you guys should be quantities of heirs. And it's like, disconnect. So this is kind of sustainability from a very different angle. We tend to think about it as just environmental aspect, but this is also like, how do you long-term plan the human resources of your nation? And like Mm -hmm. you mentioned, having a 40-year plan for where you want your country to be. I don't see a lot of evidence that our political leadership thinks in that way. No, there's many research that comes out. There was, um, I don't know if you could find her online, but her name is Dr. Peggy Antrobas. And Peggy highlighted something I think was super funny, it's not funny. She said, the challenge with sustainability is for governments is to consider short immediate gains over long-term plans Mm -hmm. when you are thinking about five-year cycle, political cycles. It is not sexy to come up with something that you'd have to plan over 40 years when you're trying to win office for the next three years. 
I'll give you an illustration. Do you fix a road properly a little at a time over 10 years? Or do you try to say you're doing something quickly and your government is efficient, so you do it in a year? I'm going to do it right before the election. Thank so you. it looks as visible as possible. Everyone can see I'm working. And then afterwards, I can reallocate the resources because it doesn't and, matter. I already and, that, and that's a problem. And, that, and that, that, that is the biggest debate among political scientists about the system of democracy versus socialism. Singapore had a, a, a dictator, benevolent dictator. <laughs> His vision was going to be it. Luckily for them, it worked out. Some other countries, no. But the fact is, if you think in five-year cycles, unless you have a plan that transcends political lines, you're going to have a problem. In some cases in the Caribbean, some governments come in and undo Mm -hmm. or stop what the one previous was starting, although it was a good program. Right, because legacy matters, because you have to run against them in the next election. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. So we did that research and we published it. We sent it to the Ministry of Education. They had a regional big issues program on the radio about it. Um, I can't tell you if they've taken that free piece of research and done anything significant with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it was, it was alarming. What I found in that paper was alarming. It was. And I, we, they spoke to the fact that Holland theory of career selection speaks to career key tests, where you test children based on their, their character traits, what areas or industries they may be more likely to, to gravitate towards. Right. Sir Kim Collins has a TED talk on, and he spoke about a, a mom who was concerned about her daughter and took her to a psychologist. In the room, the psychologist put on some music and told the daughter that we'll be back shortly, and they went outside. To their amazement, the mother's amazement, when they looked through the keyhole, the daughter was dancing. And the psychologist told the mother, there's nothing wrong with your daughter. Your daughter is just not an academic. Mm -hmm. And today, his talk rounded up with him saying that she now owns and runs one of the most um, well thought out and successful dance ballet schools in the, in the UK. Right. It's just, just today as well, I was talking to a colleague about the industry. And he made a comment saying he didn't, you know, he didn't realize that that STEM and technical vocational skills such as electricians and plumber made so much money. I said, yes, it's not the persons in the bank teller giving you the money that has the money. It's the guys that are out there that are fixing your your vanities and your bathroom fixtures that you can't live without. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it is it they're is essential. Seen, they're essential, essential services. If you have no one in plumbing or you have no electricity, you have a problem. Yep. And the fewer people that you have going into those fields, the more expensive the services become, which means yeah. you make even more money. Yeah. Yeah. But you see that we've we've come from a culture where suit and tie is what we thought was it. 
And somehow, if you didn't fit into that narrative, you weren't as intelligent. Right. That has changed dramatically now. Okay. Now you hear people are clamoring for the STEMs and the, the vocational centers to come back and the skills because it's becoming needed. I, I have colleagues that are electricians and they're up to their, their necks with work. But they've said something very interesting and, and that is the mentality of young people is still not where it needs to be to come and fill the gap. Meaning what exactly? What about the mentality? They get to work, but they're not as hardworking. What drives them to work, the same motivation is not there. You'll have one or two, but you can tell that that's stemming from a family structure situation. If you don't have a good base at home, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't care about certain things when you go to work. So there's, the, there's a societal issue about the career aspect as well that's coming into play here. Yeah, if you have a good basis, your parents says, you know, look, work hard, that we are here for you and so on and so on. You have the propensity or you're more likely to try harder when you go to work. If nobody cares about you and you don't have that self-motivation to say, look, I'm going to be better than this, you're not going to care. So part of the problem is also our parenting style? Part of our problem is our general societal support system for young people, mm -hmm. our support system. Can you say more about that? Okay, let me give an answer. I mentor men and, and boys, boys and men. I've, I've taken that up as something that I do. Yes. And um, we've, we've, I've made it quite a bit of a, a whole shouting match about International Men's Day from since 2012. I stumbled on it. I, didn't, I realized nobody was talking about it in Antigua and I brought awareness to it. We've mm -hmm. done videos about it. We've done video programs, initiatives and so on. And we have sessions where um, we were trying to prepare for some videos and um, those sessions became therapy sessions. So we talk about things that affected us as men and we opened up about it. Um, and we were real with each other. And what you recognize is because of the patriarchal society we have, a lot of the emotional and support systems that should be in place for men are not there. Mm -hmm. So where you have a situation where everybody's busy trying to get to their nine to five, that support system isn't there. So you don't have nobody to encourage you, to guide you, how to invest. This is what you may be doing right. This is where you may be doing wrong. This is where I fell down. This is where you need to be and so on. And this translates now into the working world. You understand? Yeah. Now, now from, from how we are raised, you try and be a bit more supportive for women because they are, quote unquote, more vulnerable as girls. That's how society has painted it for many years. And so you, you have a support for them. And now with the movement of Me Too and the women empowerment, which is all great, right? You okay. find that they're, they're making a pace and they're making a breakthrough for themselves. And what is showing it, itself in the academia is that the guys are falling behind. Mm -hmm. Yes, many places around the globe. Yeah. And so you've made it your business to try to equalize that gap in Antigua. I believe in the impact of sharing. So I share my successes, I share my failure, I share my family life. I'm on social media, I'm a pretty open book. I don't hide, really. I keep some of the personal stuff back, but mm -hmm. I think it's important when you make it that you bring somebody up with you or at least show them that it's possible. Because I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood in Antigua. 
um, I went to the schools that were looked down on mm-hmm. and I found a way to make it for myself. And so I tell people, look, it's not about where you start, it's how you end. And to what do you credit like your success in particular? Did you have someone who did the same thing for you that you're hoping to do for these young men that you're now interacting with? It's legacy. Some people are concerned about money. I'm concerned about legacy. Legacy. My, my father passed when I was very young. I was about seven or so. So I didn't get a relationship with I didn't have a strong relationship right. with him because he's, he was always out working. He's a fisherman at the time. And um, I, I, anywhere I go and I listen to people talk about him, his legacy was there. They said, look, he was an excellent man. He did this. My, my, way my mother spoke about him um, sort of gave me that, that, that guidance in a sense. Mm-hmm. And then I pull things from people I admire around me. And what I recognize is that the way you live is more important than anything that you can physically give to somebody. There are people who look up, read what you have to say, admire you from a distance, that are empowered by you and where you've gone in life. That impact is something that you can't pay for. And so you see it because some of the boys and the young girls that are out there, they gravitate towards music, for instance, from from certain artists who speaks about them overcoming the issues, even though at times we think it's extreme. But they sing them or they rap or they have their reggae or they dance about life, life as they see it challenges as they see it and you know the young people gravitate towards that because it's almost like you are going to the church and the pastor's preaching your sermon yeah so they identify with that and there's a hunger for it too because yeah not getting it at home or no no i'll give you a personal um um testimonial i was doing some tai chi and um a gentleman from my neighborhood came down to see me, young fellow, and he said he wanted to learn. And in talking to him, he said to me he wanted to be the next top drug kingpin in Antigua. Oh, wow. And he was very serious about it. And um, through teaching him a bit of martial arts, which is Tai Chi, not the, the com- major combative one, but about meditation and center and relaxation, mm-hmm and actually showing him how to protect himself as well, he started to, to, to change his psyche. His mind. It's like he started to feed off of my energy. Right. And so I encouraged him about school. He felt like he dropped out of school. He went back to school. He finished school. He went, did some courses. Right now he's working as an IT person. He's passionate about becoming a cyber hacker in the sense of working for the government, finding vulnerabilities in your system and telling you where you need to protect yourself. And he now has, he was going on his black belt. That's incredible. Right. This is him switching from becoming the next drug, the drug lord in Antigua. Yeah. Out of school, single parents, household. No, I had a choice at that time. At that time, I could have said, look, I can't help you. But I decided, you know, let me spend some time. And you shifted his path. Yes. That's incredible. I was just saying there's so many other ways that could have gone, right? Sometimes if you hear a child say that, <laughs> right? Like, I want to be the next drug kingpin. That's not something that you hear very often. No, it's something no. you just come out and say. No, no, and no. it can be quite shocking, right? Like, how do yeah. you do that? But yeah. you, you see, the thing is, his, his family was exposed to it, so he knew that mm-hmm. kind of life. 
right? Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't laugh at him. I didn't laugh. You understand? And I think it made all the have, difference. Yeah, I think it, you, you see the thing is all of us can't be the the Oprah Winfrey, but perhaps we all can spend a little time in one person's life to make a difference. I think that's a beautiful message. And as a parent yourself, I'm sure that is something that your child is also absorbing from you and it's probably going to be a pretty incredible person. (laughs) (laughs) My dear, if you go on, we we have something called Lip Sync Friday. If there's a page called Lip Sync Antigua, Mm -hmm. if you go inside there, you die. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if I'm going to go now. (laughs) No, I don't don't advise you to, not at work. No, no, it's on Facebook, man. That that just something that's interesting too. So so a couple of years ago, I I was singing a song in my car, and I said this would be kind of quirky if I recorded myself and put it on Facebook, which I did. So the song was on, and I was trying to sing lip singing, and it was hilarious. And something happened. Four other guys jumped in. So they recorded themselves too, and then from that Friday, for several weeks. The productions got crazier and crazier. <laughs> and, That's awesome. Right? So the men were there and they were expressing themselves and it, it became a whole fanfare. People were waiting religiously every Friday midday for us to post a video and we were competing <laughs> against each other. It got crazy. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Right. And, and so somebody called me and said, look, Colin, for somebody like you as a professional to be poppy showing yourself like this is heartwarming because what it means is you're saying, take some of the tension off. Yeah. You don't you don't have to fit into the stereotype. You can you don't take have to take yourself the, too seriously. Yes, yes, yes. They said that to me. It got crazy. My wife jumped in too. We did one for Idris Alba Bosi. And oh. it, it went vi- it, it went Antigua viral. I mean, <laughs> it was shared how many times and Three to four hundred persons were on it. I mean, yeah, big production, and it all started from me just saying, "Look, let me just post this easy." So not because I'm a man, not because I'm a professional and a father. That doesn't mean I have to be stuck up. I can have fun, mm-hmm. and it just it warms other people's hearts as well. It's just so wholesome. We, we did want we did one for Mother's Day. All of the four guys and people are crying. You're going to be thoroughly entertained. I could tell you all your listeners, log on to Lips in Cantiga. <laughs> Y'all are going to pass out. <laughs> I have no doubt. It already sounds hilarious. This has been just an incredible chat. So just in closing, I would like to ask you to share um, any contact information. If someone who's listening to this and wants to keep up with all your various shenanigans or professional <laughs> buttoned up... <laughs> Um, work, what would be the best place for them to do so? Uh, they can search on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Colin John Jenkins, 1L. Uh, and um, I mentioned the Lips and Cantiga page oh, as yes. well. There is a professional website that I have, which is cjc.design, no S. And um, I also have a Facebook page, a business address called CJC Plus Associates, Inc. You can find me at any of those locations. Um, On LinkedIn, I post a lot of um, articles that have to do with 
empowering persons when it comes to construction, things you should know about construction, budget, things that has to do with sustainable designing, um, designs that I've done as well. So I, I've shared quite a bit of the work all over. And I do PSA videos from time to time about the same topics as well, giving people information to work with. Okay, fantastic. And you also mentioned that you're involved in some lecturing. I lecture, I lecture project management at the University of the West Indies Open Campus. Um, so persons can always sign up for that 10 weeks course. It's $650. And you get a certification thereafter that's sanctioned by the University of the West Indies. Thank you so much, Colin. I really appreciated this and I had a great time talking to you. Ah, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grassroots Radio. If you enjoyed the conversation, Show some love and help spread the word. You can do that by subscribing on Apple, Google, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Already subscribed? Consider leaving a five-star review. It helps other people find the show. If you have an idea for someone you want to see featured or a topic you want us to cover, let us know. DM us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at grassrootsANU or email us at thenewgrassroots at gmail.com. For more about NGR, visit us at thenewgrassroots.com. Until next time, this is Grassroots Radio.